I uh, was having my own Christmas conversation back there. So it's good to have you here and so glad that you're here. It is Christmas time. Sounds like from uh, the conversation, not that I could hear your words, but sounds like you're having a good Christmas time and I hope you are, especially if you're new with us, like if you're a guest and checking things out. I uh, just uh, hope and pray that you feel welcome here because you are and uh, you're not alone. We always have new people here, especially this time of year. A little bit more about that uh, later. But uh, I want to talk, first of all, about uh, a song that really, it's a Christmas song, and sort of the history and how it came about, and the history and how, the story of how it came about really relates to what we're going to learn from uh, the Gospel of Mark this morning, and uh, this uh, event, this amazing event, this amazing thing that Jesus did <clears throat> on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and it's a song that, uh, you know, you either, you, there's no fence sitters in this song. You either kind of really love it or you kind of hate it, okay? And uh, uh, maybe, maybe you love it, and that's good, and, I, and I'm starting to kind of really warm to it now that I know the history, and now I'm starting to look into the words. Uh, uh, but, um, the, you, you know, maybe you have sort of a revulsion to it. Maybe you think of the internet guy trying to hit the high note, singing this song, making a funny face. Or maybe like your childhood nightmare is sitting in church at Christmas time, and this lady who uh, thinks she should have been an opera singer, but she really shouldn't have been, is trying to hit the high note, and it's just cringeworthy uh, a moment there. And that just is what it reminds you of. And it's a song we've actually already sung this morning. It's O Holy Night. And, and I got to say, our worship team really kind of drew me in because, I mean, it just sounded so good. And the words were, uh, I was able to just kind of focus on what they really mean and so forth and so on. But it's an interesting song about how it came to be. <clears throat> it used to be called, I mean, in the original days, it was called Menui Christians, which means Midnight Christians, which means Midnight, the first line of it back in the day, it was a French song uh, composed by French people uh, for one little event in a little tiny town in uh, France. <clears throat> uh, the, the, the first line was, Midnight Christians, tonight is the moment, I'm not getting this exactly right, but, but tonight is the moment that we celebrate the coming of the man-God to earth. So it's a very, very gospel-oriented song, but it's not what you'd expect because it was first performed in 1847. It was, it was composed uh, and written uh, in that uh, year because they had um, um, refurbished uh, the pipe organ that was hundreds of years old by this time in a little town called uh, Romare in France. And uh, there was this soprano, uh, an authentic operatic soprano woman, uh, Madame uh, Loray, who... Uh, wanted to, you know, do something to celebrate this at the Midnight Mass uh, this year, this, this, this pipe organ. And so she commissioned the, the town writer, the poet, he also was the owner of the wine store in town, uh, to write the words. And she also knew a famous songwriter, uh, a, a composer of that day named um, Adolf Adam, who was uh, a famous uh, person who wrote music. And they, and they came together and they wrote... Um, the words that are really gospel-oriented. Let me just remind you of the first words of O Holy Night. It goes like this. O Holy Night, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to hit the high note either. Uh, o Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and its soul felt its worth. High note's not even in there. I should say this about the high note, by the way. This is the time of year when it is your Christian duty, if you're a Christian, to sing as loud as you possibly can to cover up the people that can't hit the high note. So just, I'm just saying. But, but what's unique about this song and what's strange about this song is those words are just flat-out gospel, aren't they? 
But when this thing hit the streets, this was like, we would call it going viral. People were just gobbling it up, buying the sheet music so they could play it on their own pianos. But then there were other people saying, this can't be good, this can't be good. And the reason was, is that uh, Capot, the one who wrote the words, was an atheist. He was a Voltairean atheist, rather outspoken and rather well-known in the town as an atheist. And Adolf Adam, the one who wrote the music, was a Jewish guy. We don't know how devout he was as a Jewish guy, but he didn't believe Jesus was a Messiah. So there was a lot of anti-Semitism in those days. People said they rejected it for that. They rejected it because this atheist wrote it. How could God use an atheist to write such important music? You know? And, 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 you know, the song, when we sang the song, there was that part about the chains and the, the slaves are our brothers. This is right in the middle of slavery being struggled with in the West. And in the United States, there was still going on, right? And so people were rejecting these things. People loved it, hated it. They said, you know, no, that's right. You know, these are sins that need to be called out. Well, an atheist called them out. Well, who cares? It was true and so forth and so on. So it's this back and forth. But what it illustrates is it illustrates that God can do in the darkest of moments with the darkest of sins, with people that don't even realize what they're doing. God can, tr- can bring something that's transformative into a culture, into a world, even in those dark ages. And you begin to wonder, ask yourself, well, could that possibly happen today? I mean, we're, and let me just caution you about getting into sort of a chronological snobbery that thinks, well, people were different that way. Christianity was stronger. People were more inclined to be in favor of Christianity. Well, how about this? The, the writer of the, music, of the words, the poet that wrote uh, O Holy Night, Capot, he, uh, um, Placide Capot, he was, he was a Voltairean atheist, which means nothing to us, but Voltaire was a famous atheist from the 1700s who start, helped start the Enlightenment, who would say things like this. Just not too long before he died, he says, uh, of the church, he said, I've hated priests, I hate priests, and I shall hate them till the end. And he also said something else that was really unfortunate for him. He said, 30 years after I die, Christianity will cease to exist, and they will publish no more Bibles. Well, he died in 1878. 22 years later, in, in, uh, or 28 years later, in, um, how, how is that? yeah, 28 years. He, he died in, eight, uh, in 28 years later, in 1899, the Second Great Awakening started, swept through England, swept through Europe, swept through the United States. John Wesley became uh, the, 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 the sort of the fomenter of that. And, and uh, his brother started wor- wor- writing worship songs. We call them hymns today, Charles Wesley, that we still sing today. First time anybody had done that, really, by the way. And, and, and so uh, there's this thing that just swept the Western world 28 years after Christianity was supposed to be dead, which is another good lesson in life. Never predict what's going to happen after you die. Just bad idea. But here's the thing. In those dark moments, through people that you would least expect, God did something. And, and it was, this is a, that's a small illustration compared to what we're going to see Jesus do today. But it starts to make you think, you know, that's not that different than what we're experiencing. Could it be possible that God could plop something in the middle of our culture, in our world, in our time? Here's the thing. If you look at Christian history, we'll get into this a little bit more at another time in, in future weeks. But think about this. Every time Christianity has been declared dead, Every generation where it seems like Satan is going to win or the inbreaking of God on earth seems impossible, something happens that is unexplainable unless it is true that God is present in his world. 
And that has been true since the night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Ever since then, that's been true. And you can look at it even in, in America. If you look at the renewal movements that have happened in America, it's happened over and over and over again. You see, since the early 20th century, we in the West, and especially in America, have gotten sort of infatuated with this idea of progress. And, and, and you know, I've kind of wrestled around with, well, well, you know, we're Christians, we're not, we're not uh, in, in favor of regress, necessarily. I mean, we're, but, but progress, progress without God, is that possible? And because of that, when I ran across a quote uh, this week uh, by a, a historian, I don't even know if he's a Christian or not, but he says a very insightful thing about the whole idea of progress. His name is uh, Christopher Dawson, and he wrote this. What is known as the belief in progress would often be more correctly described as the belief in human perfectibility. Let me describe human perfectibility. That means that human beings can perfect themselves and lead themselves to utopia all by themselves. That basically human beings are good. That there is no sin in them. That evil is, doesn't exist. It's just you're uneducated. They're just, you know, you don't really, you're uninformed. You've, you're, you're the victim of bad circumstances. That's not really evil. That's just victimhood. That's what we've come to today. But that, what's driving that is the idea that somehow human beings can perfect themselves. And what we're going to see today is, no, you can't. But you know what? That doesn't mean that it can't happen. If it is true that the kingdom of God has planted itself on terra firma in this world, and that kingdom of that kingdom there will be no end. Isaiah 9. Look at the story today. If you want to follow along, it's in Matthew chapter, oh, sorry, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs and met him. And this man lived, the impure spirit being a demon, by the way, demons. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with cha a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. So, the original language is pretty clear. These chains that he was dangling around were on his feet. So it's sort of like, you know, he's running through the tombs like Marley or something. Not Bob Marley, but Jacob Marley, you know, the, yeah, that one. So it was very scary. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I mean, imagine this. I mean, it's just crazy. And as you're imagining this, let me just address the elephant in the room right now, Okay. I know it's kind of weird. You've probably never heard a message in church at Christmas time on the demoniac that Jesus healed, right? I mean, it's kind of odd. Why would we be doing this? Well, Mark puts it next. And the Holy Spirit put it next. So blame those guys. I mean, that, that's really. But really what we're getting to see is we're gonna, what we will see is all, as in all the gospel stories, but especially this one, it illustrates something that's vitally important at Christmas time to remember. It's vitally important to remember through the year, but this is the time of year when we remember it and we come back to it and say, oh yeah, that's right. And that is that Emmanuel, God with us, that God is with us and he's in the most unlikely places and he can transform the most unlikely people. The people that maybe come to your mind right now, then they'll never get it. 
They'll never be Christians. They'll never darken the door of this or that or the other thing. I mean, that's the, that's the thing we have to understand is that, that God, the, the message of the gospel is that this, this is the theme. The theme is that Jesus has the theme of this text too. Number one theme, God has, Jesus has authority over all of nature and the universe. Yes, the creative na- order, but he also has power over the spiritual order and disorder. He has power over all of the spiritual realm. And and here's the thing. We're going to focus not so much on that theme. That's the number one theme. But there's a close second in here. And it is this. If it's true that Jesus, by his very presence, has power over the spiritual order and disorder, then what should our reaction be? That's really a secondary focus here. And what what, what is he asking us to do or not do about it? That is a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question, especially in our time, when sometimes things can feel dark. But look at this. The, the word garrisons there is, uh, um, we see a little later at the, in verse 20, actually, that the place was called the Decapolis. Decapolis being a Greek uh, conflation of two words. One is, is the deca, which is 10, and polis, which is cities. So there were 10 cities originally. Pompey the Great, a great uh, Roman general, had liberated um, in 63 uh, AD from the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabees, if you've ever heard of them. He, he, he totally demolished them and that, that, that uh, rulership uh, of the uh, Jewish people in the area, and he, he, he uh, cut these cities off from uh, the Jewish rulership, and he, he did, they decided, Rome decided, to establish them as perfect Roman cities. So they had poured money, they had poured culture into these cities, so these were perfectly the best Rome could do in terms of human perfectibility was the Decapolis. And, and you begin to wonder, hmm, why is Jesus going down there? I mean, this is completely pagan territory. It's, it's in the southeast corner. There's this valley, southeast corner. Today, you can see the valley uh, in, on the Sea of Galilee. That there's this valley that goes up. That's where these Decapolis things were. Now, we stay there, actually, when we go. There's a little place called En Gev, a little kibbutz right there in that corner section. I've never seen any demon-possessed people uh, that I know of, certainly not uh, ones who uh, are in this big a problem. And, and, but but it, 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 the question that arises is, why would Jesus go there? Why would he go to this dark place? Why would he go to this, this place that is unclean? I mean, the tombs, as soon as the, the disciples came running up in the boat, they had to think, oh, Jesus, don't make us get out on the, de- on the, on the beach here because we're not even supposed to be in those tombs because in the Old Testament, in the, the Jewish law, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says, you know, you shouldn't touch dead bodies. You shouldn't hang out in tombs and, and so forth and so on. So it's, it's definitely one of those darker places that they would have never expect Jesus to go, and yet he kind of led him over to this corner of the Sea of Galilee and lands on the beach. And this guy comes running up to him, and, and here's what happens. Verse 6, when Jesus saw, or when he, that is the man, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name. So he kind of takes God's name in vain, but on the other hand, he's not worshiping here. He's just trying to call out God's name. Don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied. And we are many. And he begged 
again, Jesus again, not to send him out of the area. Now, what's interesting here, and we have to be careful with this and hold this loosely because we want to build an entire doctrine, an entire way of thinking on this one thing because the Bible doesn't do that. But it does seem to indicate here that these demons were attached to the region. They didn't want to be sent out of the area. Why? Well, they'd had free reign. They'd had, and all of a sudden, Jesus had to show up. But there is some sense that a demon is tied to areas and that where, where people reject the true God, then demons show up and they, they, they kind of hide under the radar. You know, nobody wanted to deal with this guy. He was triple and so they just left him in the tombs and stayed away from the tombs and so forth and so on. Uh, but, but the reality is that, um, you know, we act, we ought, you know, there's a kind of an idea in, um, in modern churchdom about territorial spirits. There's some truth to that. There's not so much truth to that that we build these entire theologies on it. That's why I'm being cautious at the moment. But there is some truth to that, according to this. I mean, that, that he, they didn't want to be sent out of the area because they would lose, uh, you know, their, their spot. They'd lose their uh, help. But what, what this really is saying is, is this area was a pre-modern society that was full of the culture of the day that wasn't that different from post-modern society that we live in today that has rejected God, and yes, Satan, as long as he can fly under the radar, he's going to have some activity in there, whether it be L.A. or Decapolis or New York or PDX. It also means that those places that get darker and darker darker are the places that have the most potential for Jesus to show up and shine the light, and it'll go faster and quicker than anywhere else. What about that? That seems to be the way renewal happens. That seems to be the way lives are changed. They weren't expecting it, and they're changed. God reached out and popped in and said, you know, uh, showed them himself, and they changed. It, it, it's uh, sort of like what uh, my friend Jack Sarah, uh, the president of Bethlehem Bible College, uh, told me one time, because I, I, I asked him about this, because I'd heard that he had said this in some talk. He said, you know, we go up to... Um, up to the Muslim areas in Palestine and the Palestinian areas, and uh, we bring food to them pretending uh, that that's all we're doing because we can't proselytize them because it's against the law in the Palestinian territories to uh, proselytize Muslims. But he says, I have people coming up to me all the time saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And, and, and he said, he said, you know, he said, ask them, Why, how did you have this? At? Well, Jesus just appeared to me at night or in a vision. Or, and so I started reading the Bible, and I'm a Christian now, but I can't be too loud. I mean, that's the kind of thing you begin to see in the darkest, most difficult places, and it starts to challenge us. I mean, I mean, the, the, the further we get in the story, the more you realize, this is darker than I thought. Because I'm imagine the disciples coming up in the boat to this beach. <laughs> like, John, did you see that flash in the tombs? What? What? That guy, there's somebody, oh, here he comes, and this big guy that nobody can control, strong man, running at him. I mean, man, that'd be freaky, right? Just be crazy, craziness. And, and, and Jesus says, what's your name? And all of a sudden, we discover why he's so strong. He says, my name is Legion. Legion? Yeah. Well, that means like thousands. A Roman legion was 6,000. This guy probably didn't have 6,000 demons with him. We'll see it's more probably like 2,000 in a minute. There's a good reason for saying that. But this just means he had thousands of demons associated with him. He had thousands of, uh, of, of, uh, uh, of these entities just torturing him. 
and it was the darkest of the dark. And, and, and what's interesting is, you know, uh, Jesus just doesn't shy away from this. He, doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't freak him out at all. Disciples, I'm sure, were behind him. I would be. But look, look what happens next. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus. Notice the word begged. You're going to see it many times again. Begged Jesus, send us among the pigs to allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000, there it is, in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Okay, so why did the pigs, I mean, they, they wound up being disembodied anyway. Uh, well, because they just can't help themselves. They just got to destroy stuff. That's demons. The other thing is interesting here is if you've ever used a sort of a sarcastic response, uh, do pigs fly? Have you ever done that? Like, did you take out the garbage? Do pigs fly? The answer, you better be careful with that because the pigs do fly apparently off a cliff, but they can't swim. So just don't use do pigs swim. That, does, that doesn't work. But Sorry, let's go on. 14, those tending the pigs ran off the, and reported this in the town, in the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. I bet they did. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus leave, to leave their reason, region. So they began to beg, that's the same word, beg the people to leave their region, beg to Jesus to leave their region. So, you know, the reaction is, is like, oh man, this is too, don't know what this is, but I'm pretty sure it's messing with the status quo. Please, please go. And the, the pig's presence here, by the way, proves that this is Gentile territory. Like in Isaiah 65, because of those, those laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says that when the, the uh, people of Israel who had began to worship idols and reject Yahweh God and so forth, in Isaiah 65 it says, when you do that, it's like you're sitting in the tombs eating pork, right? And again, to this day, era, uh, to, uh, Muslims and Jews do not eat pork, and you're considered unclean sitting in those tombs and so forth and so on. And, and the reality is, is that they, they, uh, Jesus isn't balking at this at all, as dark and as unclean as it is. Think about that. And think about this. Imagine being one of those, of those pig herders. Probably didn't own the pigs. This is a lot of money going into the water. Now, we don't know what happened after. We're not told. That's not the focus of the story. We don't know if they harvested the pigs from the water and had a giant luau afterwards or if they fed the Roman army or whatever. We don't know, right? But we do know that Jesus was more focused on this person. He's more focused on this human being, which says what? It says that something that we have begun to do in terms of reducing human beings and the value of a person to the point of saying, well, we're just all animals, and we got to, you know, it doesn't mean that we abuse animals, but it also is clear that pigs are not people too, okay? Can we just say that? 
That's the reality, but it's part of this sort of reductionism of the human being, so we can just kind of force everybody and do whatever we want, and we can do whatever we want to unborn and whatever else. That's kind of the move of our culture. Again, getting into the darkest, darkest spot. There's another interesting thing here, too, <clears throat> that is, is interesting, is that our culture, as we get further and further into this idea that, you know, everybody's good, good in their heart, and we can perfect human beings if we just educate them and make them do the right things, and we can pass laws that are going to make utopia and all that kind of stuff, as we get further, further down that track, I mean, you're starting to see it pop up in the media, Right? You're starting to see people feel sorry for the demons. (laughs) Feel sorry for the dark people. Because they're not really demons. They're just victims. They're victims of bad circumstances. They're not, you know, these these poor fallen angels. I mean, there's something made them fall. Right? I mean, you're even seeing it in the media. There's There's a TV show called Legion, for example. It's on FX, I think. Never seen it. Just seen the pre uh the sort of the preview of it. So I knew kind of what I was talking about. It's a Marvel comic book character who is in um, is a mental institution because he's hearing voices. And, and it's not, uh, please understand, it's clear in the scriptures that every person who has psychological disorders is not inhabited with the demons. Okay? Just to be clear, there, there's, there's a lot of struggle and torment in terms of the mind, but that's, you know, that's not what this is saying. But, but in, this, in this story, this guy you know, meets somebody who starts to say, maybe you should listen to the voices, and he, he, he starts listening to the voices. And he goes, hey, the voices are a part of my superpower, and he takes on the name Legion. Why? Because these voices, these demons apparently, are his superpower. That's exactly, that's in our culture, and it's being spoken in our culture. Uh, there's another one on CBS, a new TV show called Evil. I've only watched the first episode because I saw it. Evil, okay, that looks theological. Better watch it. So that's about a psychologist who doesn't believe, an atheist who works with a Catholic guy who's a, a, a demonic investigator, a murder investigator. Kind of a weird theory. And, and I watched the first episode. I got to tell you, the demon that shows up in that first episode is just really stupid looking. I mean, it's the dumbest the most predictable thing you could think of, right? It, it almost made me laugh when it showed up. But anyway, uh, I'm not, I have no idea about these shows. I'm just telling you that is in the, in the, sort of in the bloodline of our culture now. It's in the world of, but, but it's sort of like, you know, hey, you know, let's kind of, let's, let's, let's get into the dystopian world because we're all messed up and, you know, so forth and so on. And you know, let's feel sorry for, for people that, you know, are doing these, these evil things and so forth and so on. And rather than saying, hey, you know what? Jesus can change all this. Oh, no, no, it's, it's unchangeable. It's impossible. It can't be helped. And what's, what's interesting about this is, is there's a, a New Testament theme that shows up most boldly in Romans, and it offends us to the max in our cultural world. And the, the offense is this, the belief that we can make ourselves better and we can like me, doggone it, you know, get better and better and better if I just have a positive attitude. The... the um, the theme in the New Testament is this. You and I, without Jesus Christ, you and I can, can't not sin. The rejection of Christ itself is a sin. And so we, we can't help ourselves. We can't help but fall into evil. Not this kind of evil, but not help ourselves fall into error. Just talk about long lay the world in sin and error. We can't help it. Long lay we. And then that's what makes Jesus 
birth and his cross and his resurrection so significant and so powerful. And when he came and said, hey, guess what, people? Now the good news is this, that the kingdom of God has touched down on earth and is present. And that same kingdom is talked about in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6, for example. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. And, and that's, that's where the story starts to sort of open up and Things get transformed, including this man. Look at this up in verse 15. This is the most powerful statement in the whole story, I think. It says, the people come out and they see this guy. doesn't say anything. It just sees this guy sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Dressed and in his right mind. It's, it's a complete picture of a transformation. A transformation of somebody who couldn't help himself, really. Was controlled. Seemed impossible. Everybody just said, oh yeah, he'll never get fixed. Just shove him out there. Get him away and send him over there. You know, I'm never going to, you know, uh, can't engage that guy. I mean, he's breaking chains and, and running after people and scaring people and doing all kinds of stuff. And so that the, the person they had swept under the rug, Jesus goes right for him. And it's that person whom they see transformed so it's, a, it's an example of what the life change Jesus brings. It's an example of discipleship. It's an example of sanctification and transformation of what can happen to anybody, no matter how dark the culture or the environment or how hard the circumstances, not to belittle some of the horrid circumstances that people have to grow up in these days, but that even at that, there are not lost causes that Jesus can transform even those people. And we see the depth and the breadth and the height and the incredible nature of this transformation in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, that is to leave apparently, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has made, had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis all through that valley, which, by the way, there were probably more than 10 cities by this time, probably more like 20 to 30 that had been kind of popping up as a result of what the Romans had done there. And so all in this sort of pagan culture, but all in the culture of the Roman world and being given all the best food and the money and all that kind of stuff. Tell the whole Decapolis how much Jesus had done for them and all the people were amazed. I'll bet they were. Can you imagine those conversations? Hey, did you hear? He's back. Who? Tomb boy. You're kidding. He's in town? Yeah. Hide the children. No, no, you don't understand. He's got clothes on. Really? Yeah, nice suit. Wow. And he's a preacher. Oh, hide the children anyway. That's crazy. You know? I mean, just a complete change. And, and it, was, it was that bit of bright light that he brought that changed everything. Even, even the man's deepest desires. Notice he begged to go with Jesus. Whereas before he was revulsed by Jesus, the demons were anyway, now he's begging to be with Jesus, which is the opposite, same word is used, of the begging that the town people do back in uh, verse 17, pleading with Jesus to leave and to get out of there, right? 
I mean, the, the, look at the tr- deep, God can even transform you and me. And, and most often when people become Christians, become Jesus followers, when they begin to follow the way of Jesus, it happens suddenly and unexpectedly. They don't expect it either. This guy probably didn't expect this when he got up that morning, although he maybe didn't get up. Maybe he was up all night. And if he could think straight, I'm sure he didn't expect, hmm, I hope I become, uh, you know, God's person today. No. I mean, there, there was something in him that knew that there, there needed to be something out there, you know, which, which, by the way, shows that demons can't completely infest to the point that they can actually change the nature, the image of God in a person. But, they can't, but, but this guy and these townspeople would have never expected this. The deepest desires are transformed, and Jesus draws us to himself. You know, Jesus comes back here. In a couple of chapters, we're going to see this, back to the same place, maybe back to the same beach, back to the Decapolis. He heals a guy, and a bunch of people bring uh, some people, more people to heal him, and he teaches, and then he feeds 4,000 people. That's where that happens. And so what's happened here is the kingdom of God is established on this beachhead, and it isn't going anywhere. It will be a kingdom of which there is no end. And the, the word starts to go in partly because of this man who is sent in there to teach and to preach and to be transformed. And it was his very desire, his longing, are changed by Jesus and Jesus' calling on his life. Most of us who are Christians know what that's like, not maybe at this level, but at the level of, he, can, he changed me. He changed my desires. I, I know I have. I've told you this story. I told the youth group this story a few weeks ago. I haven't told you all the story, but it's the story of how I became a pastor. When I was a kid, terrified God was going to make me be a pastor. I don't know. I think I had this sneaking suspicion that my mom had done something really bad. She had asked a bunch of really strong Christians to pray that I would become one or a missionary. Later on, when I was 30s, she finally admitted, yeah, she had. But um, I was just terrified because I thought, I hated church, boring. Thought you had to marry really weird women because the pastor's wife at the time scared me. And um, so I go to Bible camp in seventh grade, and a bunch of the guys, I find out they're all scared. They're going to be pastors too. And our, our counselor's a pastor, so at quiet time, when we really don't want to be quiet, we ask the pastor, what's it like being a pastor, and how did you become one? How can I not become one? Um, and he said, guys, look, if God wants you to be a pastor, he will make it so you don't want to do anything else. Like it's the greatest thing. He'll change your, even your desires, which terrified me because I didn't even want to want to be a pastor, so I was scared. And got into high school, and the only thing I can tell you is that through some mentoring and some, some uh, discipling and some people really working with me who were pretty tough in their own minds, the pastor and some of his uh, people that were uh, transformed by his ministry, um, as a result, I was what the Puritans called soundly converted. Finally got to the point where, yeah, okay, I'm all in. All of me, regardless of what you want, including my desires, but let's just not talk about the pastor thing. You know, then I met this woman who was amazing. I thought, oh, she's gorgeous, she's amazing. And I found out somehow, I can't remember how, that she had prayed all her life, uh, since she was a little girl, that she would be able to marry a pastor. <laughs> and it's because her dad was a pastor, and he's such a good guy. I mean, he's such a great father and a great pastor. It was just... She'd had a good, great experience. And so I thought, well, that counts me out. Darn. So I kind of let that go for a few years. Then in college, in, uh, in late, uh, in high school, in college, 
God made the transformation complete. I got to start preaching and teaching, and I'm like, I didn't really like getting up in front of people talking, believe it or not. Not even for 30 minutes, let alone whatever we're doing right now. But the thing is, <laughs> it's like, oh, no, 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 no. And, and, uh, but all of a sudden, people really responded. Man, it's like, whoa. Because one day, the, pre- the pastor was like sick, and they, they needed somebody. He said, hey, Dwayne, you get up. To- okay. It went pretty well. And I suddenly realized, you know what? If God can use me like that, I think I better reassess my attitude. And then I I was in in good shape, so I did go out and start going out with her, and we did get married. So it worked out great. But the reality is, is that God can transform even silly desires like that. If he can do that, certainly he can change and transform even the deepest desires and our deepest fears that have some bite to them, that really are from the dark side, exactly like this guy. And maybe, not maybe, since that's true, could it be true that the presence of Jesus in our world today is doing stuff to transform people right now all around us, all around our society, all around your life, just the same way? And they're not even expecting it, and neither you or I. Listen to this. Here's, here's the thought. I, I tell you that story about me, not to talk about me and not to tell you that if you follow Jesus, he's going to trick you into doing what you don't want. That's not the point. The point is this. You've never gone, you, you're not, never too far gone for Jesus to want you or be able to make you new. And here's an even more profound thought for this week. Neither is anyone you come in contact with this week. At the store, in your home, at your job, at school, nobody that comes into your sphere and into your life is beyond that, just like neither are you. That God can transform it, change you, make us new. Doesn't mean everything gets yippy-skippy, please understand. That's not the point. But the dark stuff, the tough stuff, is put in a whole new perspective. It's put down the line in terms of what's really, you know, important. What you begin to do is you start looking for those wondrous things God does in spite of the darkness or even with the darkness or even through the darkness. That's the reality of it all. You see, it's just back to like that song. There's no fence sitting. Jesus just says, look, I'm either going to transform you or I'm not. You're either open to it or you're not. I am in, the mo- I am in a place, uh, Jesus would say, where I can use an atheist and a Jewish person who doesn't even believe in me to write a song that would transform many, many thousands of lives and you're still singing it in church today. I am the one who can take a demoniac who's demon-possessed with, with uh, thousands of demons and transform him into a preacher. I mean, that's what he said. So there's really no here or there. There's really no fence sitting on that. It's a theme that's in the New Testament all over the place. John the apostle, who was in the boat when the demoniac came running up to him, by the way, the man formerly known as Legion. And he, he puts, John puts this truth 
of, of this dichotomy of, of, you know, you're for me or against me. There's no fence sitting. But look at what's possible right in the front of his sort of cosmic uh, rendition of what the incarnation of Jesus was about, how it happened, and what it means. Look at verse 9, of, or let me just, sorry, read for you verse 9 uh, of chapter 1 of the book of John, the gospel of John. The true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came into that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Sort of like the, the people who think, well, it's, it could never happen here. It could never happen now. It couldn't happen in this society. He couldn't be show up at this point or that beach or in this moment or with that person or in this cultural age. So they reject him. But there's another side of it, verse 12. Yet all who did, did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. <laughs> that's, that's profound, man. That, that's... That's transformative. That's more about the response that you and I have to Jesus on this whole stuff than, you know, I haven't seen any demons lately, but I'm sure glad Jesus is authoritative over them. That changes everything. It changes the whole perspective, really, doesn't it? Kind of on life, on the culture, on this world, and this Christmas, and your life and my life, and whatever the circumstances are of those lives. It changes everything. In fact, we see this same thing, the same thing that no one is too far gone in the life of Mary. This kind of unexpected nature of Jesus showing up. When the angel came uh, to Mary to tell her that she was going to have the Son of God, uh, be the mother of the Son of God, look what happens. Uh, beginning at verse uh, 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, which was a nowhere town. Nobody, nobody, nothing good came out of Nazareth, by the way. Or at least people didn't think so. A town of Ga in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will get great and will be called the Son of God, Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. To which... It's not on the screen, but Mary says next, how will this be? Because I'm a virgin. Which she didn't say it, but I would have said it. That's highly unlikely, right? The most unlikely, impossible. No, nah, it couldn't happen. Certainly not in Nazareth and not to her. Might be a nice girl, but, right? There's sort of getting at the bottom of this, there's this, this play that was actually broadcast over the BBC not that long ago, in, during World War II, a Christian play. It's called A Man Born to Be King. 
And uh, I try to read it every Christmas time. I'm only about two scenes into it this time. So I got a lot to do in the next week and a half. But, uh, but, but this play was written by Dorothy Sayers, who was and is a famous playwright and a mystery novel uh, writer, but also a deep Christian thinker and scholar in her own right, an, an amazing woman. She was asked by the BBC to write this play about the life of Jesus, and they broadcast it to the whole British nation. It's just mind-boggling. And, and uh, uh, what it illustrates is this very thing of the most unlikely and, you know, God couldn't use me. That, you know, Mary's perspective changing on this. And, and the reason I bring this up is because we leave Mary out of the Christmas story so much, we Protestants, when I say we. And for good reason, because there's been a lot of bad theology around Mary. And so we don't want to get involved. In it. But then it's a bad reason to leave her out because there's so much here. Listen to what she says. I want you to hear her dialogue with one of the, the wise men. Sayers, uh, Dorothy Sayers says, uh, you know, put some names to these wise men. This is not Bible. This is, this is just, this is the play, but there's a biblical content in here. Balthazar, the wise man says, all this we could bear, all this we could bear, their lives that is, if we knew that we did not suffer in vain, that God was beside us in the struggle, sharing the miseries of his own world. In other words, it's just too unlikely. For the riddle that torments the world is this. Shall sorrow and love be reconciled at last when the promised kingdom uh, come? Mary, these are very difficult questions. But with me, you see, it's just like this. When the angel's message came to me, the Lord put a song in my heart. I suddenly saw that wealth and cleverness were nothing to God. No one is too unimportant to be his friend. And for me, the child in my arms is the answer to all the riddles. We don't need answers to all the riddles. We just need to know that no one is too unimportant for him and that, we, that he is here and he is working to bring light in the midst of the darkness and the darker, the better. And so if you think it's getting dark, hang on. Because the light's about ready to pop in. What if that was really our daily worldview, cultural view, life view, experience? Well, this story gives us three very practical things to help us do exactly that. I'm going to call the band out here. and I'm just going to read these three for you. And then we're going to close. The first one is this. Believe Jesus is Lord over all realms and ages. So he's, he's, he's Lord over nature, spiritual realm, as well as every cultural age on the planet. There's never been a cultural age or a culture invented that he couldn't penetrate and transform. Secondly, honor people no matter how savable they appear to you. That person could never. If you think there's, here, here's a good idea, a good little experiment. Just leave it with God. It's not up to you and me to fix it. I had a friend this week saying, you know, I'm a, he's in a terrible, horrible, dark situation. He said, I've learned to lean into Jesus, to have faith in Jesus at moments like this because, you know what, I used to be a fixer thinking I could run around and fix it, but I realized I can't. It's much better to just lean in and have the faith. So here's the thing. Here's a little experiment. Think of the person you least likely think will come and join you for Christmas at Eastridge. No, they'll never, and let alone God can't reach them too hard. Invite them. Pray that God will give you the chance. See what happens. No one is unsavable to him. And finally, it's not up to you and me to fix him, fix everything. 
It's up to you and me to follow Jesus in his way and to simply, as he tells the man formerly known as Legion, to simply go tell people what Jesus has done for you. You're the expert. Just open your mouth about what he's done for you. You may not have all the answers to all the riddles. You just know what he's done for you, as Mary just illustrated for us. Let me pray for us now, and you pray together with me for just what you need to know and what you need to be thinking about this Christmas season, where where you need the light of Jesus to shine and with whom you need to be open to the possibility that Jesus can transform them and what it is in your life that he could deal with and he could shine his light on that you thought is too far gone, but it's not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord over all cultures, all ages, all realms, that he's the king of kings, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Thank you that that's true right now, and that you're at work in our world, in our lives, and you're at work in the people that we think are just too far gone. Maybe those people are us. And I pray that this Christmas time, maybe even today, if there's anyone here who just really believes that about themselves, that your Holy Spirit would walk with them so close and so profoundly that that whole idea would just be blown apart and they'd be drawn to give themselves and lean into you that you can transform it all and renew and make them new. We love you, Jesus. We love you for what this time of year means, that it means that, that you're here to make all things new. And we love you for being with us in our daily lives and go out of here with us. And may we help us to see that, help us to live it, and help us to be open to what your spirit is doing all around us this week. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. We love you. Amen.